welcome to what is now becoming a consistent special type of episode of Cold Plunge, uh, where we dissect the ideas behind a Devar Torah speech that I gave at the Chayel Minyan. So what we're going to do in this podcast is we're going to start with my speech. So if you already heard that, you could just skip to the analysis. Um, we'll have that speech. Then we'll have me, Bert, diving deep into the content behind the speech, the thoughts that are going on, and really you know, taking that idea and tearing it apart. So start with the speech. Enjoy that. Enjoy the conversation. For those of you who are new, subscribe so you get alerts when a new episode's posted. Check the back history of some of the episodes. We've had some incredible conversations. Um, and as always, feel free to hit us up with feedback. We love that too. So without further ado, we'll jump right into that speech. We live in a world of reviews. After every purchase we make on Amazon, every Airbnb we stay at, every restaurant we eat in, we're asked to judge our experiences. Right now, even being slowly trained to rate humans on apps where we swipe right or left to assess someone's value, on social media apps where we dole out likes like it's some (laughs) form of currency, even our educational system is designed around teachers assigning students ratings and reviews. And fear not, you know, we students have our revenge. We now rate and review our professors and even leave little chili peppers next to special ones. It's worth asking, in this world of reviews, is our ability to discern good from bad a blessing or a curse? It's very easy to think that these reviews are symptomatic of our time. But I would argue that far before we had the capacity to publish the reviews, humans have always been rating and reviewing machines, looking at their experience, assessing, calibrating. In this week's parasha, the first parasha in the Torah, the Torah positions our ability to review good and bad as a core part of the human story. We're introduced to man having just been created in the idyllic Garden of Eden where he could have forever gathered fruits to his heart's content. But man's stay in Eden was short-lived. There's one tree that man has been commanded not to eat from, Etada Tovara. And as we'd expect from man, the creature curious enough to climb down from his tree and rub sticks together until he made fire, he was tempted by lust and desire. He sees, Ki tov he reaches out, he grabs the apple, he eats it, you're banished from Eden and forever cursed with the knowledge of good and evil. I've always found this positioning of man's development of his intellect troubling. Is the Torah saying that man isn't intended to develop superior intellect, but he only did as a result of his sin? But Ambam's troubled by this question as well. Uh, isn't man's intellect the best part about him, the thing that makes him godlike? He addresses the question in the second chapter of the Moreh and explains that we're not talking about etzhada'at, but etzhada'at tovara. So man was always intended to have superior intellect, but his ability to distinguish between good and evil, to pass judgment, to leave reviews, that's what he acquired by eating the tree. But in my mind, the question still stands. Okay, so now 
he wasn't supposed to have the ability to discern good from evil, so what's the alternative? He, he's like the rest of the animals, eating, killing, stealing, eating his children. But he's not capable of distinguishing that from evil, and, and thus that's somehow better. But I think upon greater reflection, it's clear that there are negative consequences of our knowledge of good and evil, and that they're very far-reaching. Armed with this power of judgment, we're obsessed with attaining more good and limiting the bad. It's why it's hard to enjoy a vacation without a running narrative about each activity. So, sure, it's amazing. I was just hurled through space in this massive living room with a TV for my enjoyment, a stewardish, just a button press away. But could you believe it? We're running 20 minutes late. I, pay, I paid for this ticket. And, and the woman next to me, ugh, she keeps coughing. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah, my hotel was nice. It was on the beach, sure. One of the biggest uh, structures I've ever seen. Probably took hundreds of men to build it. But uh, it's a little crowded. And, and the room, it kind of smelled. Two stars. Is our power to discern good from bad helping or hurting, a blessing or a curse? The suffering affects us at home as well, so sure it's amazing that we live in these massive brick boxes that insulate us from the elements, bring in fresh water at our disposal, flush away our waste, and the whole thing's run on some sort of magical power, they call it electricity. But my brick box is somewhat smaller than my neighbor's. The kitchen is a little cramped, and the carpet is in dire need of replacement. Three stars. And sure, the meal was great. I'm definitely satiated. And it's admittedly sensational that somehow this slew of veggies, meat, and wine made its way from the farm to my plate without even having to so much as sniff a cow. But if I were being objective, I'd have to admit that the meat was slightly overcooked. The veggies could have used more spice. The service was subpar. My glass was empty, waiting for water, and no one brought it. And the plating? Yeah, I mean, c c come on, make it look good. One star. And yeah, it's amazing that we have beautiful shuls to bring us together, a historic tradition designed to make the prayers engaging. But I can't believe how long the bidding took. I don't get why we're singing about the sprinkling of the blood as if it's some sort of celebration. It's okay, the speech, and the tiruagadola, way too long. Show off. Two stars. Our schools are broken. Our friends are imperfect. Even our families are deeply flawed. These kinds of thoughts assail all of us. In every moment of our lives, our house is filled with items that we have given some sort of mental judgment and rating to. Is our power of judgment, the ability to discern good from bad, a blessing or is it a curse? We're the same curious creature, always staring at the horizon, wondering what's next, always rating our experiences. And no matter what we have, looking for more. It's why the Buddhists claim that life is suffering. And the Torah acknowledges this perspective. 
Man eats from the tree and is cursed with this knowledge. But the Torah's perspective is far more nuanced. It also claims that channeled properly, the knowledge of good and evil is man's greatest strength. After eating from the tree, Hashem notes, Man is now like us. Man is now prepared to be partners with God in this world. Abraham is capable of recognizing an injustice and arguing with God about Sedom and Amorah. Yudah is capable of recognizing his wrongdoing and repenting for his wrong. Moshe is capable of leaving his post in the palace to fight for a people who are being oppressed. Our desire for good is what drove us to build airplanes and houses, to harness water and electricity, to create systems of agriculture that make starvation a distant memory, and slowly and steadily build societies that are just and moral. So is our ability to discern good from bad a blessing or a curse? So here's the key. Our power of judgment is a double-edged sword. It all matters which way we point it. If we let our judgmental mind run amok in service of our lusts and desires, obsessing over the minute details of every small hedonistic pleasure, we'll never be happy. We'll find an object of our cravings, a beautiful apple, a handbag, a girl, a diamond, power, wealth, and we'll greedily chase it. And we may even get it. But at the moment we do, our victory will be hollow. We'll notice all the ways it could be better and we'll probably have already turned on to what's next. We'll travel on beautiful vacations and find that we complain most of the time. We'll build massive houses and only notice their small flaws. We'll never for a second appreciate electricity even though prior to having it we would have sworn to do anything in the world if only we could attain it. On the other hand, if we channel our power of judgment towards improving the world for ourselves, our loved ones, and the rest of humanity, we'll find ourselves a part of a project far greater than ourselves. We can use our power of judgment to identify needless death and suffering as bad and to set out to fight it. To look around and see those that are suffering, those with no friends, those elders that have no one to visit them, those that are sick or needy, we could look inside at our own emotions and notice anger, hate, and jealousy and identify those as bad. And then we could look around at the beautiful world, at happiness, at joy, at states of being content. We could identify that as good and then steadily use our power of judgment, this godly power, to move in that direction. So, is this power to identify good from bad a blessing or a curse? It all depends on if we're able to turn away from the apple of our eye. The first five-star apple. And instead, use this power to partner with God and with each other to build and perfect this beautiful world. The plunge is always scary, but taking it always pays off. So without succumbing to fear, let's dive in.
All right. We're back. Back. Ready for another exciting uh, conversation. It's a nice, beautiful morning if you want to have the picture painted for you. Sun streaming in through our window. Yeah, we could see the, the fall leaves on the trees. Nice hot coffee. Delicious. All right. So this is going to be another episode about, uh, you know, the speech that I gave. So just to, to give the general ideas, because um, uh, Bert hasn't heard it yet. And also, I'm sure you could all use a refreshing. Um, so the basic question that I started with is, how come, you know, you have in Judaism this idea that the man's acquisition of knowledge is somehow that that wasn't initially part of the plan. That's kind of a consequence of a sin. Um, and I think that that always, that's a crazy, a crazy start. Because I, what I'd imagine is you have this awareness that this ape is different from all the rest of the animals. But why is he different? How did he get different? And to not say that it was, I would think the answer would be it's a gift. Uh, this knowledge that this was, he was designed to be God's counterpart or something like that. And it's so odd to hear it being portrayed as almost this uh, consequence of his hubris. So that's the question. Yeah, I, I was having trouble with the with the question because we brainstormed a bit for, uh, for, for a bit about it uh, for a while. And I think it's because I was thinking very black and white. So I was thinking, all right, if the story says, if the story is giving this message that it's bad, then the story thinks it's strictly bad. And of course, that's not the case. Right. The story is 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 painting a side of of things that we wouldn't normally see. It's opening our eyes. Okay, we we know that humans are great and our consciousness is special. We that's the premise of the story. We have our hubris. We already know it's good. Right. No one needs to be uh, reminded of that. But what about the bad side? Is there a darkness? Good, fine. So I like that. So it's accepted already. That's good. And that's kind of where I land. So I show the darkness, but then I make sure to bring it back around that it is man's greatest gift. I show that the Pasuk says that he see, she sees Kitov HaEtzlemachal. She already has the power of discernment. And also, I, I don't mention this in the speech, but the Nachash tells her, you know, if you eat it, then vihi tem kelokim yod et right? So at first, I thought we've been taught that that was a lie. He was just trying to manipulate her. It wouldn't make them godlike. But then God, right after, says uh, he turns to the angels or to whoever and says, "Hen ha adam He's now one of us, um, and therefore we need to kick him out. Um, so, man was destined to eat from this tree, and and the eating from the tree is what made him godly. You know, and both of those are acknowledged by the story. So, you know, I think. De- definitely, yeah. To, that there is definitely some amount of good, and then we have to figure out what the bad is of him eating from it. Yeah. So, I would imagine the bad is is almost just like a sadness, like we can no longer have the beauty of animals who just do. Right? Animals do what they do, and and we don't think of them as evil. We don't associate their their lives with uh, some philosophical and emotional pain and doubt. Uh, and humans have that. They have to decide constantly what's good and what's bad. It's always weighing on us. And maybe it makes us less present or, or something like that. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's uh, almost tragic. 
um, that we don't have that. You know, now we all want to meditate and this and that. We're trying to kind of quiet the, this brain that we found to be obtrusive and and always in our ear, chewing chewing our ear off. And you look at yeah the animals and the way they could they'll kill and it's not bad. That's what they have to do. Man, you compete for resources. Otherwise, you're going to starve. Those are acceptable. Um, forms of behavior but for us we uh, we have to be held to this highest godlike standard i guess and uh that's definitely a huge challenge yeah we'll watch one of those uh nature shows and the lion is hunting and we're not like oh my this is evil how could it eat meat all right we're like oh, this is beautiful beautiful yeah i always tell big bird that i want to become a tree or you know i think that's <laughs> a similar kind of uh inclination like it looks just pleasant to be the tree he stands He's fine. He's he just is a tree. He's yeah. just a tree. Um, all right, cool. So we have that, and that's definitely a huge piece. And then I also think that it's interesting that it's this tempting apple, that it's temptation. So I see two poles for the for the the sin, right? There's one is this this lust and craving, and then the other one I see is hubris. That when the snake tells him that you'll become like God. That's the thing that draws him towards this. So those are kind of the two areas that I'd isolate as being the causes of him doing the crime and then obviously the causes of his suffering. And I think this is interesting also. And if it's, we've been talking a lot about uh, consequences, godly consequences being natural consequences. So this is just what happens when you have this intellect. It's not like an angry God smited you. So same idea here. Whatever the sin itself was that is the consequence so if you have hubris and you are easily moved by temptation then that is going to be the punishment for the rest of time yeah and i never even thought about it this way that the temptation is what led to our notion of good and bad but i think it it might be a fascinating take in, in saying that all of our worldviews, all of our contracts, just constructs just come from our, our pure desires in a way. Our notions of morality, they're coming from within ourselves, from our uh, evolutionary system or, or whatever it is, coming from a, you know, a purely selfish perspective. Right. Which I, I, n- I never uh, thought to see it in, in uh, the I, I don't Adam fully see story. the connection. Our temptation is, is what led to, to our idea of good and bad. Right, so when you think evolutionarily, how did uh, our notion of good and bad evolve or come to be? You would it. I'm sure you know you could explain complex stories, but at the end of the day, every character is acting uh, in his own way that was selected for by the process of evolution. The goal is to maximize our, our good and bad, which is, is a lustful process, and that's what creates our moral inclinations. Yeah, so, like our, so our good is, is almost defined in, in that lustful way. Even if you take like the Sam kind of moral compass that it's to maximize well-being, you would think that lust is a part of it. Or maybe his well-being is different, but ours was flawed and that lust is too big of a part of it. Meaning yeah. we intuitively thought we needed to satisfy all of our lusts. So the morals that we kind of developed were morals designed to help us uh, acquire more of our lusts as opposed to maybe something that's greater. Yeah, maybe. Or even his well-being is, is just the general notion of all we really care about is each of, uh, you know, all the individuals being able to, to satisfy their lusts. Right, but I, I do think that he think probably agree greater. that lust is, is actually going to be ineffective. Yeah. Well, 
you could use desires in a more abstract way then maybe not just raw lust but whatever our desires may be whatever guides us is really i think in some way a desire right okay good so this is where my speech kind of it, it straddles this kind of line so it, the question is how could how could it be good and bad so i kind of explained that it could be bad in that it's very easy to see it tipping out of control in the direction of lust so if you think of what our power of discernment or judgment is being used most frequently for it's to kind of craft the minute details of our experience in a way that needs to be perfect. So you'll go for a meal and somehow you have the whole commentary on the meal. It needed a little more spice. The food could have been a drop hotter. You have this massive computational power to judge good and bad. And all of these are accurate. Everyone would agree. They're almost objective in a certain way. It's not that you're wrong. The sidewalk has a crack. You notice it. But this pow- this powerful tool is being used and spilled in this needless way and under this illusion that eating this apple is going to satisfy you, that if the meal only had more salt, then it would have been the five-star meal. Um, And even, you know, for the few five-star experiences we've even had in our lives... um, They're still not five-star. They're still not five-star in some way or another. Either they still leave you wanting more, whereas the flip is... It's possible to use the power of discernment and good and evil on things that would actually help humanity's well-being. Um, and that is more of the partnering with God uh, and using it in that godly way. So someone's starving. Okay, well, that's obviously a bad that we do want to eradicate. And it makes sense that we could look at a, a country and say, okay, that's a one-star country. Let's try to ameliorate that situation. Um but like Adam Smith said, and I said it in the speech, that we'd be more concerned if our own fingernail came off than if the whole China was abolished, you know, <laughs> annihilated. So I think that that's kind of where where I had it. That there's this power of judgment is is being used obsession is becoming an obsession to eat an apple, and that's where man sees his suffering. Why do you have to work so hard at the ground? Because you just are going to keep wanting more. We could have stopped working at this point. There's plenty, you know, there's probably plenty of food if we all agreed not to just keep chasing more good. Um, And, you know, but we can't. And I guess that's the point. What animal wouldn't just be content after he had food and mates? Yeah, so our our notion of perfection uh, gives us this illusion that we could achieve it in, in our judgments you know if we find the the perfect thing then then we'll experience perfectness exactly interesting um a problem i have with that idea is that it's beautiful but a lot of the time you have people who are just pursuing uh, base desires and they end up bringing us to points where they improve uh, things that we actually care about. So yeah, we, we could we could stop progressing and and be happy and have some sort of communist system where everyone has food and everyone has enough to survive, but we won't make progress. And you know, cancer won't be cured, or or even some some base desire that we care about. Let's say not 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 something so obvious, but you know, people were uh, people were uh, farming the fields and trying to grow more wheat just for their own profit interests, and now our farming skills have gotten far better and we could support a way larger population or we could feed the world better or or something like that right so the the you could chase something that is we would say not a respectable uh, desire to chase 
but it might still satisfy uh, the desires that we really right, care so I about. I touch on this in the in the speech. I, I go, give the flip. I start with the flip side where you're on this airplane and all you, you know while you're hurtling through space in this beautiful living room, all you could think about is the fact that you know you press the the button and the stewardess hasn't appeared already or that the person next to you is sneezing but then in in the rap when i flip it back to being good i say but the desire for more of this is what led us to create these airplanes what led us to create these houses if we didn't view you know hunger as bad or or you know even travel as good then we would never have uh, been able to build any of these things and you could even think of it on a, a smaller level like yeah the amazon reviews People are getting really upset that the toilet paper was supposed to be bigger and it came small. By expressing their displeasure, they will annihilate that small amount of bed and uh, and they, as they should. And it'll be good for all of us. And so our sense of outrage is consistently helpful to us as a unit. Um, but I, I guess, and I don't think my speech is so prescriptive, but on an individual level, you're going to suffer if you play too large a role of it and again humans will will be fine they're gonna keep uh they'll keep judging and and keep the ship moving um but uh, on your own individual level i guess if you could target your your attention and, and and i think if you target directly to solving hunger you could still probably get there the issue is uh, probably with with my framing and we've discussed this so many times is that you're not as hungry to solve hunger you don't have the passion. You have the passion for your own experience, and there has to be a way where you could use your passion for your own experience as a catalyst for society. Um, and if everyone does that, then that'll be better. I was reading in Sam's book. He said that uh, we, you know, have this system where we love our kids, and maybe, and we're all biased towards our loved ones. You know, so maybe that's good, and, and maybe that's bad. He said he could easily imagine, though, that as we found with communism and with the kibbutzes in Israel, that actually trying to make everyone love all the children equal and removing the unique parent bond was actually harmful. It doesn't work. So I guess the same idea here, that there's certain amounts of us chasing our own pleasure and passion that's more motivating, more inspiring than chasing these other goods. Yeah, and I, and I wonder if the the dark side of that is true as well, and it probably is, which is, the pain from failure of chasing our own desires that don't really matter uh, is part of what motivates us too. That that might be even more of a pain than than our craving, more of a motivator than our craving. Right. And sure. so, like, we want we obviously want to eliminate that pain, especially if it's over some desire that we deem unimportant. But does that throw away our motivation? So this is our, our classic question with meditation in general and with this whole idea. I was listening to a different podcast, Tom Bilyeu's uh, Impact Theory. He was speaking with someone about Jordan. I, during Jordan's Hall of Fame speech, it became very clear that his whole career, he had just channeled anger as the tool for all of his creation. And if he didn't feel an open wound, he'd cut an open wound into himself, metaphorically, to, to you know fuel himself. And they were asking, is that necessary? Is it better? Is that the, the only way to you know hit peak performance? Bill, you concluded that he thinks 20% of the time um, it's useful to use anger as a tool, whereas most of the time you don't want to. And if you lean on it, it becomes very addicting. Um, but you know that, that idea, you know, where, what places do we need to go in the name of progress, um, personal and professional? And, and I think that's part of the story, meaning... 
you're going to have to work hard. That's the thing that makes all of us contribute. I always say I wouldn't work a day if I didn't have to. I don't know. I, I might be turning on that, though. I used to say that I don't think I would work at all. I definitely wouldn't run be as business-oriented if I didn't need money. Um, but, you know, I was in Florida just now, and I'm sitting, and I didn't think about work once in, like, a month over Sukkot, you know. And uh, I don't know. I just re- want to read more ideas. And, and I, obviously, once you read, you know, want to create something. I, it didn't seem – I was pretty sure I could stay there forever and still that I would have plenty of work to do enough to satisfy my my need to be contributing I didn't feel like I like the the only thing that was driving me but there are probably other drives besides for financial ones so maybe the desire for you know whatever other lusts that I have yeah I, I definitely believe that that if you if you give not everyone but if you give people enough time with themselves uh, where they're not you know doing anything else eventually they're going to find something that they want to do because it's, it's play video games in our nature to do things maybe they'll play video games they're going to get sick of that too if they're only doing that the problem is no one's ever only doing that because there are other things we have nah. to do and the video game becomes the escape from the things we don't want to want to do right um and it's one of my gripes with the education system i think it doesn't give kids enough free time to to figure out their own life their own world their direction I wonder if public school kids are better at finding a direction with less school time. Yeah, I think especially when they're young, after school, they, they run around and play a lot more. Well, I'm starting to see, and I don't know what came first. You know, as, as a child, you know, my parents or our parents always drove me to take on these extra activities like chess and learning. And at the time, I think I really did enjoy them. I'm not sure. Um, and I, seeing them with the other kids, it doesn't seem like you can make a kid do something that he doesn't want to do. But I wasn't sure that I was passionate about them. But now it's like abundantly clear, like, oh, I love doing these things. I, I'm dying to do them. And I wonder if there there's a price that needs to be paid through work to shove you into the door of some of these uh, these directions. And that if, the, if work is the only thing that'll make you make that kind of sacrifice or coercion. So you're saying you have to be comfortable with work, know how to work before you could become passionate about something? Something like that. Well, then you're saying passions are are, are uh, escapes from work, and so you need work to to enable your right. passions. Could be, but I don't think that's true. I think you people could find real passions or interests uh, that something that just vibes with you, and you would you would do it even if you didn't have to work. If you had no needs, though, right? So I guess this is the point. We're not saying no needs. We're just saying no financial needs. So there's going to be in the place of financial needs would stem new evolutionary. So now everyone's finances are handled, but now people still want power and respect and recognition and love and so purpose. passion and purpose. And so the actions will stem out of those drives. Financial drive is not the only drive. Yeah, and I think financial drive is actually probably one of the weaker drives when you compare to those. Like if we don't if we don't work, I think a lot of people would be depressed. They have, they, it gives them a sense of purpose. It fills their days. So I'm reading Ernest Becker's In the Denial of Death, and his thesis is that all of the drives stem from this avoidance of death. So financial drive obviously is a small one, but he doesn't put finances at all at the top. He, he calls it heroism as being this primary drive, and heroism is the courage to face death or something like that. And that's why we idolize a, a hero, because he's the only person who doesn't seem moved by death. 
whereas all of us are are just completely shooken by death and and every action that we take is kind of done in avoidance of it or so purpose is to be part of something you know whatever however good something is at making us avoid that idea that we're going to die um, and he kind of talks about Freud's ideas that we we build our lives on these series of lies and he talks about like our complete construction of symbolic lives and and all of culture as a religion that's just designed to disguise the fact that we're going to die and give us these uh, you know terms through which we could achieve uh, heroicism I don't know crazy yeah it's pretty wild maybe extreme but uh, there's definitely a lot of truth in it uh-huh. um, and maybe that's why we get a thrill from from doing things that are perceived as dangerous because like it's uh it's it that it's that moment where you take up the courage and like say to death i don't care mm-hmm. and maybe that that just like feels super empowering because you're living your whole life in fear of it and so you you take up arms and it's like you're going to battle you know you get that that rush for sure i can't even imagine people that used to fight in battles i don't know what that would feel like probably insane Another funny quote, Aristotle once said that luck is when the person standing next to you gets hit with the arrow. (laughs) (laughs) These guys are crazy. Yeah, I have a lot of good quotes these days. I've been, I'm trying to become a reading machine. I'm back motivated on that path. Yeah. And now I have new plans. On the Kindle, you could highlight specific things and then i think you could export it you could add notes to it because like i was on the the more i was trying to write the text and then write it after and i was like there has to be a better system to do this while you're reading but i'm not very good at highlighting while i go i feel like i might need to do a second run through of every book that i read where i it's much quicker but where i highlight the things that really stand out and then write my thoughts then yeah or maybe like chapter by chapter you do a second run through or two or sections something Something like like that. that yeah I definitely need to do it. I do not retain close to enough information when I read books. None of it. No, it probably has to do with our horrible memories. And it's not even like I rush through the books. I, I really take my time. I enjoy them. I, pl- I you know, enjoy the ideas. But oh, so I, don't I have a little it. bit of the rush now. Because I'm reading these books and the, the anonymity of the, the field. I feel like I'm, I need to do Bacute first before I could do Eun. <laughs> I don't know any. He's quoting a thousand people. Like Otto Rank is one of Freud's disciples, and Kierkegaard. He was a huge thinker. I haven't even read one book by any of them. <laughs> uh, what am I gonna do? I don't know. You could read their Wikipedia pages. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, maybe I should do that. I don't know. I feel overwhelmed, I, and I want to know all of it. So I feel like I need to do Bikiu, grab a huge mass of knowledge, plow through books round one. I also want to do Iyun, so I was thinking, I want to do like a, a book club, like the way I'm learning more there with, with the rabbi, I want to do that on like Sam Harris's thing. We could go through the book and, and actually section by section debate the ideas, because doing Iyun is unbelievable. Like that's kind of what we're doing with the more We're going very slowly, sentence by sentence, debating it, and it's a, an unbelievable experience. But I do think you need to do a lot of Bikute on top of it. I'm a big believer in Bikute. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely a believer. It's just always been very unpleasant. Oh, I hate Bikute. Because <laughs> it, it just seems like a, a means to an end, whereas Iyun is in it, it, you're doing it for it for itself. Yeah, like I want to find this quote for the, that drove me nuts. But it, tell us why you don't like Iyun. Why I don't like Why you like Iyun better, yeah. I guess there's there's no real reason, but I think we we share the the notion that like learning is is holy in some way or spiritual, mm. and 
at least my view of learning is sort of like this deep understanding where where you yourself actually understand the ideas like you're on the same uh playing field mm-hmm. but when you're doing picky you you're not really involved as much in the in the idea uh creation and understanding process you're just like downloading right and so i don't think it gives any of the pleasure of learning but it obviously makes you more pleasurable because later on when you're reading something else in depth and you have all this background that you downloaded uh you could understand and and deal with it on a much higher level so right we've been talking a lot about about uh downloading books like the desire to i guess that's peculiar that's peculiar i just want to download this idea into my head um it's great oh yeah i still haven't found the quote that i wanted to read and I, th- I think there might be a good way to uh, what you're, the way you're doing it is a good way to do it because if you know if you just read all the books individually maybe they're hard to remember but if you tie them together in this story of history you could understand oh Freud was saying this his disciples say this you start seeing links between people and their ideas maybe it makes them easier to remember especially for us with troubled memories yeah Yeah, if this is what he says, if the penetrating honesty of a few books can immediately change the world, then the five authors just mentioned, which is like Kierkegaard, Freud, Rank, I'm not sure the other ones, would have already shaken the nation to their foundations. <laughs> so he's saying no one reads or no one absorbs. He goes, but since everyone is carrying on as though the vital truths about man did not yet exist, it is necessary to still add another book to the thing <laughs> that's funny but, but what does that mean like he, he he's saying that there's not that so much truth is out there already if we had fully grasped the truth as they laid it out we would be tremoring in our you know i, I don't even understand what it means you can understand what it means it means that the society we live in is not at all in accordance with the truths that we've uncovered about life and what it is and like, if we really internalized all these truths, would we still be living in this world? Right. In like, would the world look the way it does? Probably not. If everyone was suddenly a philosopher, right? I didn't. I didn't read those five books either. But they have the power to shake the world to its foundation. You, you, I'm sure you believe you're uh, crazy to some degree, a neurotic. Yeah, and that's prop in part because of uh, you know dwelling with all these ideas. You, you have a radically different uh, outlook on life, probably than than most of the people you would compare oh, yourself been to. Shook into the foundation is what you're saying. Yeah, and if everyone was shooken like that, then so another good one. Part of his thesis is that all humans are neurotic, and he they, oh, there's a main debate whether whether um everyone is obsessed with the fear of death or not like that's a core remember we talked about i said it's impossible not to be depressed in this world kind of thing yeah it's a known philosophical debate there's some people that say it's possible not to but he's on the side of i have to get those quotes also one day but that it's absolutely you know a fact that everyone is neurotic completely covering up this terror he he basically starts with you this child growing up and you have this flood of sensations and 
it's just an insane terror. You, you have no agency over your life. You think, he says, that when you cry and then immediately you're soothed, that you have some kind of magical powers, that when you cry, it soothes you instantly and you are almost godlike. But then as you get older, you start to realize that you're nothing and you wouldn't be able to survive on your own. And the human's ego and narcissism can't survive in that state. So it goes crazy. And that's why kids just start getting nuts. And then you're in this petrified state that you could lose anything at every moment and that you're going to die and stuff like that. And then you create all these lies to cover up that uh, terror that you can't live with. And that is human character. That's insane. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I think it fits very well with like a lot of people have this, uh, they, they see this appeal to being self-reliant, self-sufficient, solar panels, hunting, whatever it is. I think that that fits in very much like you, we don't like being dependent on other people on society on your parents when you're young and, and weaker right so he uh, says we'll work within the constructs we'll be rebellious we'll, we'll slightly push on the limits to see but it's all within a structure that has been given to us about how to do it like there's a blank way to do it as you were as a baby with no names in complete terror just but complete sensation and he says we have to shut all that off because we realize we can't be independent if we're tremoring from awe at the universe we you know it's not a <laughs> not a viable state to be uh independent so kind of that is the tree of knowledge and uh i know one of our friends always talks about the tree of knowledge as the inception story of a child and kind of freudian terms so like that that we have the choice to live in this complete awe of the universe i'm completely dependent on god but in our desire to be independent, which is exactly that, we want we want to, you know, we have to break the rule, the only rule we were given. That's the only thing in the way of our independence. Otherwise, we're slaves to God. So we choose independence. And the only way to be independent is to move past our animal body and into this world of concepts and ideas that secures us from this idea of independence. And that is the crime that we all live with, as Freud would put it, and maybe as the Torah would, would say it. Yeah, that's a beautiful idea. Like you want to complain about it, it sucks. You have to be independent, sure, but that's life, and it gives you it gives you life. Like now, nah, you know, no one would rather be dependent than independent. Um, so, so I think I think it's that's nice. Yeah. So the bottom line, though, the ideas have gotten me crazy. I just want to read nonstop. So while I was in Florida, because I have nothing else in my head. I'm just like, I just want to learn all day. I started teaching myself piano. I, I, got, I was able to play songs with two hands. I was nice. loving it. I, they, they have a grand piano there. It's insane. In a, in a room, a closed room, like private, not in the lobby. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, in the beautiful room. The down, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's overlooking the beach. No one's there. Massive, like probably 300 square feet, maybe no more than 300 square feet. 1,000 square feet. Massive room. I sit and play piano. I, was, I had plenty of projects to work on. I would learn all day. I would play piano, teach myself skills. Just focusing on your health alone is a full-time pursuit. Full, full-time job. <laughs> I mean, so what, what, is, what does that mean that I would need to work? I couldn't understand it. Yeah, I, I guess ideally the work you do is part of your health. And to a lot of people it is. It's filling this emotional void or philosophical void or something, right? Without purpose, they would be meaningless. So just just being home taking care of themselves i don't know if that's enough or maybe that's enough of a sense of purpose who knows okay so i hit on this and you can tell me what you think about so we've been working on ideas in these conversations and in our learnings and everything like that and when i was in florida i realized that in some way i'm obsessed with having ideas that matter to other people like finding an idea that i could teach because i guess my natural disposition and my occupation um but why should i be 
who, what do I need to share my ideas for? I should only just try to find ideas that are useful for me. What do I care if the idea is useful to anyone else? So that was an interesting idea also. Like other people are contentious to learn on their own. And, and then I could actually, because I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to think downwards to what would be useful to someone else. Like I don't know what would, first of all, I don't know what would be useful to someone else. My ideas might be completely disruptive to someone else. I'm, uh, I can't be sure. But I do know what my need is, so maybe my desire to learn is all flawed by the desire to give back. Yeah, and and even more, if you pursue ideas that are just good for yourself, you'd probably uh, pursue more complex ideas. Yeah, that's uh, reading these new books, ideas. these academic books. And yeah. eventually when you build up enough of a base of them, they might enhance the way you could teach other ideas even more so than just pursuing ideas for others because you'll start to be able to to take all this very high complex stuff and compress it down into your own new simpler ideas rather than just finding other low hanging low ideas, hanging the ideas, ideas that are and, being shared and, and already echo them yeah and those ideas are already being shared but these academics they give up on everyone else like he's not interested this guy becker and the regular person he's writing to freud and freud's students he, they're not even in dialogue I don't, I don't even think they completely decided to abandon like maybe that was by conscious choice yeah, and maybe there's a power to it to separate the thinkers from the people and have someone else be the bridge. This way, the thinkers could be pure and not politicians. Right. So I always we always discuss this. I think of uh, educators as marketers. They're just people that need to market ideas to people, useful ideas. Someone needs to get it into their attention. That costs money. That takes charisma, and that's what an educator is. Whereas maybe a thinker is not an educator. His his need is to engage on the highest level and maybe market it to other thinkers, which is a different skill set, but not mark it down. He said Otto Rank wrote these ridiculous books and he knew that no one could understand them. So he always had hopes that one of his students was going to transcribe them for ordinary people. And that's what Becker views his book as. But his book's still way over. Like, I don't even know who he's engaging with. I think maybe also they, they get in this bubble where they're all surrounded by academics and they forget even what people are like i find like i have that issue i have no idea where people's heads are at i'm not sure yeah they don't it doesn't even pop into their mind to regular people it's not it's not part of their world they live in a bubble and yeah who am i writing to obviously i'm writing to the people i know right and he okay. only knows these academics he can't even imagine what other people are thinking about i don't even know yeah i, I don't think it's necessarily problematic as long as you have enough people who are willing to to cast the ideas over in a respectable way like you think of our rabbis, they're not writing the book, right? They're they're echoing the ideas, bringing them to the people, spreading spreading God's message, right? So they're in the role of uh, middleman, the middleman, the educator. But and some of them stra try to straddle the fence. The question is, can you even effectively straddle the fence? It's very tough. Like the, I'm sure there are a lot of rabbis on both sides who would want to bring about change, but the hardest part is that the people don't want change and so if you're if you're this charismatic fellow who has the crowd in, unless you're super super charismatic if you try to bring out cha bring about change you might you might lose a lot of your supporters and so they don't they don't want to come up with new ideas because their primary role is is have a have a supporter base so what do i what do i make of this insane thirst for more knowledge it's a it's just another desire yeah exactly is that what i'm supposed to think of it or i guess that's the point he so i'm trying to mask my fear of death that these ideas are somehow uh, something more than 
you know, more than life. It's a transcendent uh, practice. And I guess that's everyone. It's heroic for me to want to study these ideas. The hero, and, but maybe that's fine. That's just you have to, you know, engage in the way that you could be a hero. Yeah, I, I think it's fine. And I also think that. So that's what I keep bumping into, though, this illusion that, that I know that I want to be a hero, right? And he says most people won't admit if you told them they would start blushing and denying it immediately. But I was like, I would, yeah, I would deny it. Of course not. <laughs> what else am I trying to do? I want to live the most heroic version of my life. I want to perform to the highest level, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah. Put me in Hogwarts and in, in right in fantasy land, and I'm not I'm not going to be any of the characters, but Harry. Yeah, of course you want to be the hero. Who associates with anyone who thinks they're Ronald? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Who wants to be Ron Weasley? Yeah, no one's Ron Weasley. Some people might associate with Neville because he is a hero at the end. Hermione, I would be Hermione. I wouldn't be Harry. Hermione's heroic too, though. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Hermione's the best character. And maybe that's why people would want to be Ronald. Why they get to be with Hermione? <laughs> Ronald's <laughs> yeah, a great character. Also, look, I just want to—he's a hero too. We shouldn't have he's just besmirched Ronald. He's definitely a hero. He keeps everything light and fun most yeah. of the time. They—they they really do him bad in that last book. I think I—I I never forgave him. You never forgave him? No. <laughs> Even Hermione forgave him, though. I—I I didn't. You didn't? No. But he, he was, was very sensitive locket. to the locket. I know. Yeah, but it was all there. I but it, but it wasn't just the locket; it was all there. And also, he's super grumpy. Like, I don't have food. He's very spoiled. It's very hard. I I don't know if I could forgive him. It's crazy. I don't think I ever forgave him. And you love him all the books. He's this jolly guy, and one. Yeah, he's your best friend. I don't think I I ever forgave him. I don't know. I understand why he felt that way. I still judge it him just for makes it. Him, it makes him a less respectable character. Yeah. He's but maybe it makes him more the fact that he always had all that there and he was still able to be so jovial and to embrace Harry the way he did. Yeah. I, I mean, where did it come from, right? It's not his fault that it's there. Not at all. He has all these older brothers. He's always going to be second yeah. best. And all of his brothers are legends. Yeah. I mean, Bill is a legend. Charlie a, a great Quidditch player. Charlie is like off around the world fighting dragons fred and uh, george are, are obviously pure legends percy's the least legendary and he's like some kind of super genius who ends up like almost minister he's like the prat you know ron's like at least percy's worth that's why no one's more excited that percy sucks than ron because <laughs> finally one of the brothers is less prestigious than him and still, his brother is his assistant to the minister. <laughs> and the magic. only good thing about Ron is that he happens to be friends with Harry. <laughs> Basically. But but not in some way. He's the one who he was able to keep that spirit, excitement alive. And I'm sure he, he in part, made Harry who he is. So he, All right, well, he if, lives in Harry. If you don't listen to read, read Harry Potter, you probably should. Definitely. Maybe we should do a podcast, a Harry Potter. I know that they did it, but we would do it better. We would love it. We have more passion for it. They were pretty passionate. <laughs> Binge mode Harry Potter? Yeah. Oh, they were unbelievable. We can't do it better. Can't do it better. I forgot how good they were. Yeah, but yeah, they were unbelievable. <laughs> they were great. They were great. I forgot about that podcast. I didn't retain one second of what I listened to. <laughs> no. No. Um, yeah, but so everyone wants to be the hero. I strongly relate to that. But I see the cracks in the veneer. Like I know that if I want to, everyone wants to, and that it it's feels not such it's not so noble. Fraudulent. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm not able to convince myself, but it is it is real, I guess, in some ways. I don't know if it's noble, but it's uh, like who's the hero nowadays? Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, are they the heroes? No, Even Sam them, Harris like, is we don't see hero. Sam Harris is a hero. I see a hero. Um, who else is a hero? There are heroes. I have my uh, heroes, and at least we get access to everyone has small heroes. But people's heroes suck. They're like the Kardashians. What do? We, what does that mean about society? I want to just burn it down. I'm, I'm with uh, what's his name, Qui Gon Jinn and Batman. <laughs> Qui Gon Jinn and Batman. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. What's, his, what's, his, what's the guy's the name? The Dark Shadows. The League of Shadows. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I guess that's what the book is saying. If if everyone internalized these these deep ideas, the Kardashians would be nobody's hero. It's it's terrible. It's really depressing. It's frustrating. But why? Why do I? Why am I right? Why? Why do I? Everyone feels like they're right. They think the Kardashians are the only noble hero. No, I doubt they actually feel that way, though. No, they wouldn't even debate it with you. They would just say, "Oh, I don't know." You're missing the point. You don't understand what this is about. You don't speak our language. Uh, so maybe I don't. So that's Sam battling moral relativism, and uh, you know, like. I, I guess that's what we love about him, that no, we can say that certain ways of thinking are better than other ways of thinking and will lead to better societies. Yeah, if, if your idea works, explain it to me. Right. <laughs> Unless you don't buy into rationalism. But someone could say that to Ernest Becker. If your idea is so good, explain it to me. You can't understand his idea, so <laughs> it's not useful. You're telling me that everything in my character is a, is a, a neurotic cover-up of my fear of death. For, no one knows if, if telling someone that is even if showing someone that will even help them i guess maybe freud was able to cure people's neuroticism so that was the proof yeah okay it might seem like an absurd idea but at least if you if you play with it uh rationally and intellectually you know you could see where it stands whereas if someone is not willing to defend their idea why uh, why, why do you worship the kardashians i don't know right what, is, what does that mean I mean, maybe they're maybe they're more uh, present than we are. They just live in their. They in, see the apple. It's a beautiful apple. They're able to their their faculties of identifying beauty is is good. But I think that uh, we understand that already. That's the opening of the story. He sees the apple. Yeah, okay, you could be a connoisseur of food. Congratulations, you have a very fine palate. It's not a useful skill. No, it can be useful if you if you turn it in the right direction. And you see that when society goes crazy over whatever injustice is, sometimes they're actually right. And but there's a proper way to channel this rage and this identify uh, and the ability to identify bad. That's that's clear, but it's not our our baseline state at this point. Our baseline state is it, it, it's helping. It's slowly. I guess that's the point. It's slowly. Look, all these reviews help make, but. What, they make better products. They make it easier. And then Maimonides would say just for these intellectuals to, to be able to lay in the bed of this. And that's yeah. fine that we need the infrastructure. Yeah, but, I, but every person individually could live uh, a way greater life than just being part of the infrastructure. Right. And I guess that's, that's where society in a way doesn't care about you. As long as you're doing your role as the cog, society doesn't care if you're a happy or a sad cog. Right. You want to be happy with the Kardashians as role models? It's good. Just keep doing your thing as long as you don't become violent and you, you keep posting reviews and doing some kind of job. If you want to clean my laundry, then that's fine with me. You know, then, yeah. then you're good. But the rabbis, do that. the rabbis and the spiritual leaders are saying, 
no, we, we don't care that you just spin the cog in our machine. Uh, we're, we're offering you ideas that can make your individual life even just as it as it affects you better. Yeah, so Becker was saying that the society's current infrastructure may be failing to provide everyone the opportunity to be heroic. And if people were to acknowledge that heroicism is what they seeked, then the whole structure might topple because it just doesn't have the room for that now. And what kind of society would we need to build if people uh, were empirically, empirically demanding their heroicism? It sounds also like Sam. Yeah. yeah. And I, we deal with that a little. I mean, her- heroicism might be... Uh, veiled in the american dream for sure or, or this idea of of uh mobility right now heroicism is maybe very financial related or not not even because because politicians are successful and and academics you know, and academics and artists who who may not even have you know be so wealthy but this idea of of uh, social mobility is is essential it's part of the story of heroicism and and people are becoming unhappy that they're realizing that it's just a story and you know st- Statistically, it's still very unlikely that they, as an individual, can uh, actually move, can actually become heroic, right? And so exactly. they are they are becoming concerned and upset about it. The opportunity for the heroicism to actually manifest anywhere but in their imagination is unlikely. Yeah, but in every in role in every role, you know, as a parent to the child to this child that's completely dependent on you, that's a chance to be a hero and have someone look at you like you're a hero. Um, you know, there are opportunities everywhere. I guess that's the point. But you just have to direct your attention properly. This The structure that was currently built is not go to a, to visit someone or feed someone who's hungry and you're instantly a hero. There's endless opportunities abound for heroicism. But if you keep using your power of judgment to loop on these small things, it's, a, it's the wrong place to put them. Yeah. If your hero is Kim Kardashian, it's very unlikely that you're ever going to achieve uh, hero status in that way. Oh, probably zero percent chance you are the next Kim Kardashian, right? But but if your hero is, you know, maybe not necessarily even a person, but an idea, something noble, uh, you know, helping the poor, helping the sick, helping the weak, or or leading others around you Being in, around in, in the small circle, hero. Keep, yeah, keeping people happy, and then it's attainable, very attainable. Yeah, or even if if Neville is your hero, that's attainable. If you know. Any of the the, the realistic characters, um, and who are the the Jewish heroes? I think that that's relevant. You have Abraham, the usurper of the of the old world order, willing to walk his own road, completely his own road, completely no independent path, of the structure. moving countries when it was much more difficult, or moving ta- cities at least. Really. No, how many of us would move? Period. Yeah, we wouldn't even move now. I sort of want to go to Colorado temporarily. Transfer to Boulder. Yeah, I'm not thinking of that. I you want are. to spend a, a year or two there. You know where, what school seems sick? Tulane. Oh my God, New Orleans. I'm working with a kid on college guidance for Tulane. They rated fourth in happiest students. That's Campus is gorgeous. Yeah. It's just why, like does, a why does no one care about happiness? Right. I mean, that's just, uh, <laughs> send me to Tulane. A patent stat. Like, so then why would you go to any other school? Whatever school's number one, let's head there immediately. Yeah, number one. <laughs> I don't know. So Tulane seems sick. It's gorgeous. Oh, man, I want to go there. I gotta... Yeah, I, I maybe after college I'll get a job uh, there. Or I, uh, they're surprising. College is really the chance, though, because you, you, everything you have is you need is there in terms of socializing. And... Yeah, otherwise it's scary going to a new place. 
yeah, it's also not as fun. I mean, here it's all set up. Yeah. And you could sit and learn. I feel like it's kind of conducive to the idea of learning. Yeah. Not learning in the college way, though. Like you no. go to a new place and you want to travel and meet new people. and For sure. Uh, so it was crazy how when I went to Israel for the year, how quickly I just tried to create routine and avoid avoid travel. How much I detested. It's funny. Yeah, I did not like travel. Like, you know, there are some people who are like itching to go away every weekend, to hit different parts of the country. And I was like, I want to stay in my dorm in Yeshiva. This, I want to feel like this is my home. I know. So we don't want much exploration. But I, I, I want to feel other places be my home. I don't just want to step foot in a new city. I want to live there temporarily. And, and, and I think that's a, a much different way to, to get to know the city. True, but I feel like you also just get to know yourself better. Like you are this organism that is going to create a very similar structure anywhere you go. And you're more married to that structure than you are to seeing. You could right away become you pretty quickly. Like I went to Florida. All I wanted to do was build, but I built a different me, but it was based on Um, the principles of me in this new place. Yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting how how different places channel different facets of you. I th- that's definitely much more interesting than than just oh, let me see the food in this new place. Sure. So travel, that's Abraham, and build a new path, uh, your own path. If you realize that the place that you're in is not conducive to the path that you want, and just start believe that you could be the start of something. That's heroic. Yeah. Because we see ourselves as part of this and we, we don't exist outside of this. He believed he, what he had was so strong that he could build a new... I don't know. I don't even know if he knew he could build a new thing. Maybe he just said, I'm going to do it for myself. And, and no, but everyone else had a nation. He gets to this land and there's nations all around him. Who, what kind of vagabond runs himself? Yeah, he lives Alienates he his a, culture. He was a recluse. He, he didn't have a society. And then somehow he started, people started finding him because and he, of the power wealth and... You'd think you're in the worst financial position. Exactly. He didn't need their financial infrastructure. He had the confidence he could find it anywhere. So Abraham, okay, it's a great okay. hero. Um, I think Joseph, Yosef. No, well, you're not going to go through all of them. You're going to skip around. Yeah, we can't go through all of them. I mean, maybe this could be ongoing. We could hit them. Ah, maybe we should just leave it. Leave this for a different Tora. <laughs> different Tora. I think the order matters. You, you sort of see a flow. Like, now, nah, I was thinking about Isaac. I was confused for a moment, and then I sort of, I sort of uh, started seeing it click together. Yeah, I see Isaac as the the flip, the stability. So I, now I had a good start. Yeah, I don't so I built my build own road, down. but it, but it's not going to maintain itself. I'm going to have He's to maintain the executor. It. Build, yeah. build, yeah, build put roots in the land abraham like wandered out this path and isaac is turning the path into this beautiful glorified system yeah and then jacob in the midst of having a path is willing to to break it again and i even willing he's forced there's going to be all these crazy challenges in in the way of you doing it and you can't be too attached to the plan he didn't say i need to stay near my father and you know he got a little caught up in who gets the blessing and how it's going to be passed down but only by leaving and getting a fresh start and, and becoming who he was in contrast to someone else was he able to really build his own unique ideas. Um, I don't know. We got, it's great. It's great stories. Yeah. So we have these timeless heroes that we're supposed to uh, emulate. I once had a, in Sleepaway Camp, I always used to say, I understand how we have baseball cards of Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> 
disgusting. We wear shirts that say on the back of us, Rodriguez. Like, we want to be Rodriguez. Because where is the card of the Vilna Gaon? Of <laughs> <laughs> we should wear shirts that say on it, Feinstein. <laughs> um, but it, it kind of resonates, right? Like, who yeah. who, who is the hero? And, and the hero of knowledge... Maybe that's only attainable to us because we feel like we're uh, predisposed in that direction. Yeah. Um, but but there are other noble heroes, which is which is what you're saying. Okay, so if the hero of knowledge is not your hero, there's the hero of, of courage, uh, even the hero of loyalty. Uh, you know, there there are other heroes. Interesting. So the tree of knowledge. This week's this week's speech. Yeah, it's a an iconic story. Obviously, uh, the, the most well known story in the Bible, probably. Yeah, an iconic take on the beginning of man. You know, we always think of man as uh, being above everything else that was around him, uh, destined to be this uh, this uh, yeah, this hero. And the opening story of his inception is almost through theft. He comes to this uh, to this place, uh, being more of a curse than a blessing. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's in a way it's like telling us what does it mean to be the most powerful species. It just means that where you know we have the strongest desires, or we're best at at satisfying our needs. Interesting, right? So it's a it's a more humble take. And a, a chance to accept our our lust and our hubris, because those seem to me, if you if you looked at humans and you said, what's the source of of humans' trouble, right? It's our obsession with lust, and and in some ways, our hubris. I, I always struggled with hubris. I always thought hubris is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably on character for me. Yeah, I probably struggled the other way. You think hubris is a bad thing? Like we used to read Frankenstein and they said he was hubris. He was making the monsters like he was a genius. He was an inventor. What do you mean, he's, <laughs> he, mean he was hubris? That's, that what better compliment is there to God to want to be God? Yeah, no, I, maybe we should be hubris. I, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I think I struggled in that I was maybe too uncomfortable with arrogance to, to allow myself to be a little arrogant. But I think the story is more on your side that it's portraying man's hubris. I guess it's a mixed it's a mixed coin. That's the point. It's a mixed coin, and yeah, exactly. That's the point. We know we know the greatness our hubris can do. Yeah, we know Abraham argues with God. What kind of hubris, more hubris, could you have than that? Than someone who would fight back against the decree of of you know the universe? Yeah, exactly. So, so to presume that that we know, and I that's how that's the only way the the notion of good and bad can work, right? We presume that we know what's good and bad that we have the power to make judgment, that we know the direction the world should take. Right. And it's kind of necessary. So I think that's also Sam's moral landscape. It it's reads as a very arrogant text that we're capable of knowing. We're capable of having conversations about what we want, identifying bad and good, and moving towards good. We shouldn't, as a society, say, oh, we found it to be the case that when we had freedom, access to resources, information, it was good, but this is distinct to us. Most other humans find their pleasure from uh, being generally mutilated or something ridiculous. <laughs> yes. Or, or to, to go in the, even more in the extreme, uh, you know, this society finds its pleasure in... Uh, murdering each other and eating babies or yeah, whatever they did. Sacrificing their firstborns to the name of idol worship. 
right? That was Abraham's power that he could look at a whole society and say, nah, this is wrong, incorrect, <laughs> incorrect, yeah. this, is, this is evil. So to, to allow uh, the arrogance some role is, is definitely essential. For sure. So that's, that's the tree of knowledge. But then the cost that comes with this arrogance, because um, everyone is going to be arrogant, and everyone's going to be as dogmatic that their path is true. Their path is about selling you a cheeseburger because that is the single most important thing <laughs> that you could eat. And we have a moral obligation to spread this cheeseburger to as many uh, as many consumers as we can. And false prophets, everyone who has crazy information that they insist is the number one information that you need. Um, and even as individuals, we watch other people's lives and we constantly think we know better. Yeah, I have a, someone that I know who I would say the word judgmental is the primary word for him. Every experience that he has, he has analysis. This coffee, nah, I don't like it. <laughs> and it. Oh, meat, I love meat. <laughs> oh, this? Coconut, nah, I don't like it. And it's just incessant judgment of, of everything. And in one way, it's a very powerful trait. He knows what he likes. And he does have a, a very astute palate, and in, in some forms, I do think he's a connoisseur of experience. But on the other hand, it's like, all right, listen, what, what good could all this judgment do? <laughs> yeah. You know, we can, we're not, it's not helping us. We're, we, we need to judge everything now. No one could like this thing because you know, and and you have that. That's why I hit the reviews in our speech. You have this movie. Why can't people see the movie and decide if they like the movie? The critics have to say no. This movie was terrible. Eh. How is this even a good process? People should have to go in there and start thinking, what, oh, this album, was it good or was it not good? What's our opinion of Kanye these days? You no know, one could even experience anything with this incessant uh, ideas of reviews. And because we know, I know I have to write a review of, on an Airbnb, I get to the Airbnb and already it starts. <laughs> beautiful place perched on a beautiful hill. Uh, a great a location and an unbelievable experience however if you know and then whatever things and we have this narrative that we're just overlaying every single object that we have in our home we have the how many stars that object was imagine i don't give reviews but i give internal reviews but imagine the people that are actually giving the physical reviews on every product they own how can they even look at their toilet paper again they that's know. great yeah <laughs> that that's a that's an amazing perspective and like we're obviously all we're all doing it to to some degree, whether we're online critics or not. That's the the story. It's built into us. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. this is man. So you have this hubris. It's a powerful tool. It's the thing that Abraham channels. It's the thing that Moshe channels, right? But then you have it like just misfiring about these random details that someone needs to do. But if your heroism becomes the person who could find the best food. We, don't, we have a limited need for so many of these heroes. Yeah. It's, it's not essential that everyone is the toilet paper reviewer. We, we could we would suffice with like 40 reviews already. We'd be able to get a full <laughs> picture of what's going on. Yeah. But on the other hand, if your heroism is is like that of Abraham, you know, let's say you're you're a politician willing to to embrace new ideas or you're a philosopher who's who's willing to to open the world to to new ideas then you know we need your hubris we need people like that in our society to lead us forward kind of touches on what ricky cohen said about being unafraid to live uh, as an entrepreneur it's very similar to hero that embrace your greatness and your heroic journey that that your godliness that you are trying to play in this way and then channel 
this uh, heroicism towards things that because once you bring it to conscious thought Sam I was talking about this also he says like once you point out to someone you were more compassionate to one person than to three they'll immediately be able to correct and say oh that's a mistake obviously I don't know how my emotions why they worked that way but I I have a conscious notion of what my heroicism should look like or what my morals should be and the more conscious we make these ideas maybe the the better we could channel them and that's why this story asks you this complex question in what way is our judgment helping us our ability to discern good and bad and in what way is it hurting us and how would we want our power of judgment to be operating yeah um yeah it's a it's a tough question i it, how would we want it to be operating i don't know that it that it would actually change much and it's, it's the classic question we always have which is the judgment of the small things ends up adding up to something big uh but I think what, what needs to change is is the the casing around it, which is, you know, if if you let the bad the not no, I shouldn't even say the bad food if you let the not perfect food upset you, that's clearly just a, a weakness on your part. It's tainting your life, and it's and it's also going to take your focus away from the things that matter. We have like a, a in a way a limited amount of uh, judging power. You know, we get tired at the end of the day. We get worse at making decisions. No, we're always going to. We're always going to judge our experience. It's inevitable. It's not something that we're capable of not doing. But if we just become more aware of, of what it's doing, and okay, so you notice something about your toilet paper, it's kind of funny. It doesn't have to be uh, agitating. Yeah. I see some of the reviews like tragically disappointing. <laughs> you know? Scam, beware. The guy's fully outraged. His whole system's firing. You know, like, <laughs> this, this is not, this is not the, uh, the goal. So you, so you have this this tree of knowledge, the, the notion that desire is always going to be the, the thing pulling us. It's what do we want to desire is kind of the question. What should be the apple of our eye? And and how capable are we of, of finding better apples? Yeah. Well, even when, when determining what should be the apple of our eye, we could probably always judge and say, no, there could be a more perfect apple. So just upgrading, <laughs> upgrading your upgrading apple. your apple, yeah. Finding a slightly better apple. Yeah, I, I think it would be of great help to individuals and society to be able to, you know, identify an apple. I think it's a challenge. It's a difficult thing to do because it's like you said, you have to settle with an imperfect apple, and that always bothers us when making decisions. But, but you're chasing apples anyway. Yeah, that's the you know that's the point like sam was talking about this with morality also like you think oh how can we make moral decisions there's moral relativism like we're making moral decisions already yeah. we already make decisions about when to go to war based on our moral intuitions and instead of believing we could study it scientifically and come to better conclusions and worse conclusions we decide to blindly follow desire without thinking of what do we want to desire or yeah. or what's the range of things that we can desire yeah, you're going to tell me there's no morality and then tell me it's wrong for spreading my ideas to, to other societies. Exactly. He says that, yeah. So, the, and we always say this with the path. Our path isn't perfect, but we are already on a path. Yeah. So so upgrade. It's, just, it's not choosing between your path and infinitely many paths. Identify another path, and now you're choosing between your path and one other path. And, and that, I guess, becomes a, a more attainable decision. Sure. 
All right. I think this was good. Thanks for joining us for another, another episode, episode of, of Cold, Cold Plunge. Plunge.